in the real world in which we live, there are rules. One of them in our world as it exists today is that you can have whatever you can get. In, in a certain sense, we can understand the fairness of a rule like that, especially if by legitimate work, you can get something for yourself, then at a basic level, you should be the one to decide what to do with it. Now, that's kind of the biblical foundation for a, a basic free market economy. If you legitimately earn something, you should be the primary decider of what to do with it. Now, that gets complicated in real life as well, but it's a basic rule. It's, it's, it feels just normal, like it's the end of the story. The challenge is that in the real world, there are people like us, and we make other rules as well. One of the other rules that we make for ourselves that connects with this idea of if you earn it, then you get to choose what to do with it, is this. If I have it, then I must deserve it. That's a little bit different, isn't it? If I have it, then I must deserve it. And I wonder if you've seen that basic attitude in yourself. Maybe you've even had to kind of fight back against it in yourself. You see somebody else who has less than you, you have more than them, and there's something inside you that wants to explain that to yourself. Why do I have more in this area than that person? And the the easiest explanation, the quickest explanation, the reflex for me is, well, I have it because I deserve it. Maybe I was more responsible. Maybe I sacrificed more. Maybe I gave up more. Maybe I uh, lived a healthier lifestyle. There must be some reason in me that says I deserve to have more than this person has. Now, we might see that come up in ourselves and say, wait a minute, that something about that seems wrong, but it's amazing how easily it comes to me. I wonder if it comes that easily to you as well. It seems to me that, that I, I can more quickly explain why I deserve something than I can explain why somebody else deserves something. Why does that come so quickly to me? I wonder if it comes that quickly to you as well. Now, we know that if we live in a world in which each one of us can more quickly explain why I deserve it than why anybody else deserves it, then we automatically live in a very dangerous world. We live in a world that is primed for war because each one of us is saying, I deserve it more. We know there's something wrong with that. <clears throat> the, the problem with our way of explaining what we deserve and justifying what we deserve, saying, I deserve it and here's why, there, there, there's, the, there's another way of seeing that problem as well. And, and here it is. We, we're prone to say, if I had more, if I had more money or if I had more influence than I have, I see people around me who have it and I, I kind of feel like I deserve to have as much as they do. And if I did have more, if I had more money, or if I had more influence, then I would use it justly. I would use it rightly. I would do good things with it. 
I, I see people who have more than me and they're using it selfishly, but if I had what they have, then I would use it the right way. And we mean it, at least in our heads. But so often, that's just not the way it works in practice. If I have a lot of money or a lot of influence, I find that I stand in a place where I'm able to get more than I'm allowed to have. I, I, the rules say you can only have so much. So I might have a lot of money and I could buy all kinds of things for myself, or maybe I could, maybe I could use my influence to get things that social rules or God's rules say I can't have. And I find here I am in a place where I have all kinds of resources and it's not enough for me. And so the, the impulse in each one of us, when we're put in that situation, the impulse is to not be satisfied with what our resources give us. The impulse is to steal. I must have more. And so I can't live by the rules. So I steal, I steal things like my brother's wife, which is exactly what Herod does in our passage this morning. Our passage this morning in Luke 3, 1 to 20, happens in the context of the real world, the real world of powerful rulers, and they're listed in the first two verses of Luke 3. And those rulers, uh, playing by the broken rules of the real world, demonstrate themselves in what Herod does when He's given lots of resources, and he's not satisfied with receiving the basic provisions of his position. So he steals his brother's wife, and he steals the voice and liberty and ultimately the life of a prophet. And it's inside that real world that we see someone show up who brings new rules. Before we go any further, I want to read our passage this morning. It's Luke 3, verses 1 through 20. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, 
What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that, had, that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. This is the word of the Lord. So the kingdoms of this world have rules of their own. They have an economy of their own, a power structure, a way of doing things. And it very much just feels in many ways like the real world. And within that real world, someone is coming with a new set of rules, a new power structure, maybe we could call it, a new economy. I say new, but in fact, it turns out that that it's actually really old. It's ancient. It matches the moral fabric of the creation because it matches the moral fabric of the creator himself. It just feels new, the the rules that this person is going to bring. They feel new because they're not normal in our world. And so, when it shows up, and we'll see what that moral fabric is in this passage, but when it shows up, it feels so new, it feels so strange, that people are going to need to be prepared for it. Uh, People's rules are going to need a bath. So, God sends a preparer to give them one. (coughs) And that's what he does, beginning in verse 3. John went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is preparatory. He's preparing people. He's he's not actually giving them the forgiveness of sins, but he is preparing them for it. And God has said for years that he's going to send someone to do this preparation because he's going to send someone to give this forgiveness. He promised it through Isaiah in Isaiah 40, verses 3 to 5. And Luke mostly quotes it here. So far, the preparation for Jesus has been private. It's been given in private messages to um, to Mary and to the shepherds and even to, to Simeon in the temple. His eyes, he said, had seen the salvation of God. 
and now it's going public. Now all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So Luke, Luke refers back to Isaiah 40 and this promise that God would send a preparer for all flesh to see. It's interesting what Luke does here. He mostly quotes Isaiah, and in some ways, he preaches Isaiah. Isaiah, in chapter 40, verse 5, says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. All flesh will see the glory of the Lord. What does Luke say that all flesh will see? Luke says all flesh will see the salvation of God. So which one is it? Is, is all flesh going to see the glory of God or is all flesh going to see the salvation of God? And God says, yes. That's exactly how all flesh will see the glory of God. God loves to rescue. He loves to give life. He loves to give himself. He especially loves to give himself in a special way to those who don't deserve it. And so he says, when you see me, give myself to those who don't deserve me. When you see me take rebels and bring them acceptable into my presence, when you see my salvation, you see my glory. You see who I am. You see, as it were, my moral fabric. This is what I love to do. When you see my rightness and my richness, my justice and my mercy show up in bringing somebody to myself, you see who I love to reveal myself to be. You see my glory. So John is preparing the way for all flesh to see that, to see the salvation of God. In order for that to happen, preparation needs to happen. People need to be prepared for it. They're not used to the moral fabric of creation. So they need to be made ready. And that's what John is going to do. That's what John is doing right here. And we'll see him do that in a couple different parts. Uh, first, he's, he's going to tell the people at a very basic level, you need to change. Something about you needs to change. And we're going to see that in verses 7 through 9. Then we're going to see what needs to change, more specifically in verses 10 through 14. And then he's going to explain why it needs to change in verses 15 through 18. So first, as a way of preparing them to see the salvation of God, he tells the people, you need to change. Uh, he meets them exactly where they are. And uh, he doesn't, he doesn't, um, he doesn't, pad things at all. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. How are you going to get what you think you deserve? How are you going to get what's coming to you? And the very most basic way that you get what's coming to you is a question of who you belong to, who your father is. And John says right out of the gate to these people, you are a brood of vipers. You are the offspring of the one who told your first physical parents, get what you need and what you want for yourself. Get it for yourself. You deserve it. 
And God won't actually give it to you. So get it for yourself. It has been the serpent's way of leading people from the very beginning. And John says, uh, this is this is your father. You are children of this one who says, you deserve it. Get it for yourself because God is not rich toward you. God is not right toward you. God is not just or merciful. So you must take care of yourself. John knows that that people will have some way of justifying to themselves and to others why they should have the favor of God. He knows they want that, and he knows they're going to have some way of explaining it. What are their rules by which they would say, oh yeah, the favor of God, that belongs to us. And he knows that for these people who need to be prepared for the salvation of God, their explanation is going to be something like the approval of God. Oh yeah, that, that's my dad's privilege. So I get to have that whenever I want. So he says, don't even start. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Don't even start to say, oh, that's our daddy's privilege. We can have that whenever we want. Because that's not the way that God gives out his favor. It's not by natural descent. It's not, it doesn't come automatically from being descended through Abraham and it never has. It's never been how God has received his people. It wasn't that way with Abraham himself. When he does it, when God receives people favorably, says, you're welcome in my presence, it's always a miracle. It always has been. It even was with Abraham. This sounds similar to Isaiah 51, starting in verse 1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. So you, those of you who belong to me, you were, you were like dug out of a rock. That's how incapable you were of producing life for yourself. And that's how incapable Abraham was of producing life for himself. Abraham knew that when God came to him in Genesis 15. He was but one when I called him, God says, and he was incapable of changing that. God says, I'm going to bless you and multiply you. And Abraham says, I don't have an heir and I can't make one. I can't make myself more than one. I'm like a stone. I can't do this. And God says, I'm going to do it. And Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. God says, you believe me to multiply life through you when all you can produce is death and I receive you on that basis. God counted it to him as righteousness. And so still today, this is how God raises up children for Abraham. John says, I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Life out of death, restoration of the life that we have ruined for ourselves. And that's exactly what happens when God raises up children out of stones for Abraham. That's what follows in Isaiah 51.3. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden. 
her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her thanksgiving and the voice of song. So even now, John says, here we are in this wilderness, and here you are looking like trees. You look like offspring of Abraham, but whose offspring you are will be demonstrated by your fruit. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And he lays the groundwork for that by making sure that they know that an attitude of entitlement before God steals and kills and destroys. It's been the devil's way from the beginning. It blocks the way to the salvation of God. So here's, here's John in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord, making every mountain and hill low, and the crooked becoming straight. What's he, what's he doing? He's, he's preparing people. He's preparing people to receive the way of the Lord, the way of the Lord that leads to salvation. And the thing that keeps rocks and mountains in the way, the thing that makes paths crooked is this rule, I get what I deserve, and I deserve the favor of God. The people that John is speaking to need to experience preparation for the rich and right way of salvation that God is offering. The real way, the way that doesn't come naturally to them, but, but the way that is good. They need to experience the preparation for that. It can't only happen in their heads. So John gives them very concrete instruction. He says, I want you to make choices that reject an attitude of entitlement. People might ask, what? Okay, John, you're calling us a brood of vipers. You're saying that, that we can't get life for ourselves and you're preparing the way of the Lord. What then shall we do? What, what are we going to bring to the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And that's essentially what John tells them here in a way that prepares them for standing in the place where the salvation of God comes. Do justice love kindness, and fundamentally walk humbly with your God. That's what he describes to them. We see that mercy and that justice in verses 11 through 14, and the mercy comes first. The crowds first ask him, what shall we do? What does he require of us? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. 
mercy. This is addressed to people who have extra, who have more than they need. And John basically says, do you have more than you need? And do you see somebody around you who has less than they really need for life? And share with them, give to them. Do what the merciful heart of God does and share what other people need for life. This is fruit in keeping with repentance. If you're going to return to the place where God gives salvation richly and rightly, this is where you come. You, you, you come to, to the place where you share richly with those around you who are in need. This is the place where you experience the richness of God. Again, this is, this is preparation for the salvation God is going to bring. And here's how it works. You can only do this from the heart. You can only share your extra with those who have need from the heart if you trust that God will be rich with you. If you trust that God will be merciful with you. When you stand in a place where you say, I'm, I'm going to step out, I'm going to share with those around me, that requires me to trust. I, I, I trust, God, that you are merciful toward me. Which you have to do if you're going to receive salvation in the way that the Lord is going to provide it. I have to trust that you're going to be merciful with me. If, if you won't do it, what are you saying? In the end, I don't, I don't trust you to be merciful with me. I have to be merciful with myself. I have to care. For myself. You have to trust in the mercy of God in order to be prepared for the salvation that God is going to provide. The same thing is true with trusting in the justice of God, the rightness of God. And we see that in verses 12 through 14. These are addressed to two different groups who are in positions of power, in positions of advantage, in positions of influence where they have the ability not only to keep what's their own, but to take even more from others. And so you see the tax collectors come. And they ask him, what shall we do? And he says, collect no more than you are authorized to do. If you're familiar with kind of the way things worked for the tax collectors, it was sort of a pyramid scheme that was run with Rome at the top and people under them who were responsible to gather taxes for Rome and when they did it, they kind of set their own commission. And they said, yeah, you need to give me 10 denarii for Rome, and you need to give me one for me, or five for me, or eight for me. And they could set their own commission levels. And they had ways of being able to enforce that. They had influence. They had power. They had the ability to take from others what did not belong to them, but what they could have made a case for deserving. And John says, love justice, do justice, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Same thing with soldiers. Here they are in a position of influence. They, they, can, they can force people. Um, they can coerce them either by violence or by threats of false accusations to pay them off. And John tells them, be content with 
what you earn. Be content with your wages. You see yourself in a place where you say, I could get more and just the rules don't let me do it. And the rules aren't fair. So I'm not going to live by the rules either. John says, trust in the justice of God. Trust in the just heart of God. Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. When you're in a position of influence, there is really an insidious attitude to watch for. This attitude that I mentioned before, I'm, I'm able to get more than I'm allowed to have. This is the attitude that seems to have been at work in the life of a very public Christian um, in recent years. Somebody who, after his death, uh, investigations uh, revealed a, a tragic set of moral failures in the life of this man. And what is perhaps just as tragic is what was revealed about his own reasoning, how it was that he was able to justify having inappropriate relationships with many women uh, who were in a, in, in, in a vulnerable position. He stole from them. He stole from his own wife. And the reasoning that, that has come to the surface as a result of this, these investigations was basically, I deserve this. The investigation seemed seem to say that, that he, he said this in almost so many words to those that he was stealing from. This is God's reward to me for serving him so faithfully. Uh, the, the normal rules don't apply to me. He, he, he could not stand. The, he, he stands in a place where his position of influence could get him more than he was allowed to have by the normal rules. And so he stole. And it was tragic. And uh, God has spared many of us from being in that kind of a position of influence. But this is something to watch for in all of us. We can stand in a place where our influence allows us to make new rules, bend new rules, justify new rules. And what must happen for us to stand in a place where we receive the right, rich salvation of God as he gives it, we must trust in the just heart of God. Trust that he will always do what's right. Trust that when, when we stand in a place where we see more that we could get to say, well, God, you always do right for me. You, you have, you've been more than generous with me. Your way is right. Your way toward me is right. You've always done what's right for me. You have been fair and more than fair. These tax collectors and soldiers are, are tempted to practice injustice because they don't trust God to be just with them, which you have to do if you're going to be prepared for the salvation of God. In both cases, there's this attitude, I, I have to take care of myself so I can't be bothered to take care of others. Because we're all pretty much getting what we deserve anyway, right? That comes naturally. The call of John is trust in the just and merciful heart of God. 
Trust it in your heart and trust it in your life, in the way that you interact with other people around you, whether they have less than you or whether they are under your influence. Trust in the just and merciful heart of God. And people hear that, and there's something about that message that causes them to say, well, this guy, this guy gets it. There's something about what this guy is saying that is just so right. And we haven't really heard it in this way before. So this guy is really something special. And, and so we see them begin to process that in, in verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. This guy is this guy is really good at explaining the salvation of God to us. Could this be the Savior himself? I, I experienced uh, something kind of like this probably around 15 years ago uh, with another John the Baptist. Uh, his name is John Piper. Uh, he's a preacher up in, up in Minneapolis, and he's a Baptist, so I'll call him John the Baptist also. And, and many, many people have, have benefited in key ways from, from at least certain aspects. I have. I, I have benefited in key ways from the ways that John the, John the Baptist of the 21st century has explained the salvation of God. There were things about the way God offers salvation through Christ that I hadn't understood before, that I hadn't heard before. And, and it was life-giving to me. And I began to experience the fact that other people were experiencing the same thing. And we would even go to conferences that were hosted at, at John Piper's church. And, and it, was, it was an amazing experience to be around other people who were, who were grasping the depths of the salvation of God and how he offers it. And we'd look at each other and say, wow, it's, it's really good to be around other Piperians. Isn't this great? Um, isn't, isn't it amazing that, that, that we get to experience this together? And there's almost a tendency to say, could this be the Christ? He's so good at explaining the salvation to us that we, that we can at least functionally treat him as the Savior. Now, he's not, and, and he knows that. Now, John Piper's not a perfect man. I believe he's been a faithful man. He helped me, and I think one of the ways, one of the ways, perhaps the most fundamental way that he has helped as a faithful, imperfect man is the same way the first John the Baptist did it. This is how the first John the Baptist did it. He said, you people need a prophet to tell you about the way of salvation, and you need more than a prophet. I'm not the one you need. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. I think that's a message that we have heard from both faithful, imperfect John the Baptists, and it's a message that we need. We need the one who is the real Savior. He, John says, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John isn't saving, he's preparing people for the real salvation. 
the salvation of God will be given to us richly and rightly, mercifully and justly in a person. Not by somebody telling us, here's how to do what God requires so that we can go do it and get it for ourselves. We will not. We do not have that life in ourselves. We need it in someone else. We have uh, enough ability to produce life for ourselves. We, ha we have as much ability to do that as the stones, as much as Abraham had. And so the, the call on us is the same. God says, I will give you life, a life that you cannot get for yourselves. And the call is, believe me, trust me. Say, your way is right. And your way is not found in me. This person will show us perfect mercy and perfect justice, and he will fulfill it in us. And when he shows up to do that, he will begin to divide people. Because some people will say, no, 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 I do deserve it. I can earn it. I, am a, I do have Abraham as my father. I was a responsible enough person. I am good enough. In some way, I deserve it, and I must because I want it just for myself. Prove in the end to not be standing in the line of Abraham, but to be standing in the line of the serpent. And Jesus is the one who is ultimately going to make that division. He's going to come with his winnowing fork in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. He's going to make a division. Jesus himself being there, embodying and fulfilling the rightness and richness of God is going to force a decision on people's parts. Are you going to trust this person as your salvation or not? And we can't respond to him neutrally. Now, John speaks in very strong terms. And the way Luke summarizes that is interesting. In verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Does this sound like good news? You brood of vipers, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He's going to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Where's the good news? There's grain. There's grain on the winnowing floor, on the threshing floor. He actually is bringing life. I really am preparing the way for the salvation of God. These mountains of self-righteousness are going to need to be exploded in order to level the way for the salvation of God that comes by grace through faith in Christ. And it is coming. We have the opportunity today to experience that rightness and richness of the salvation of God, the rightness and richness of the heart of God, the justice and mercy of the heart of God, on the other side of preparation. We've been given the light. We've been shown Christ for who he is. If you're in Christ, you have the opportunity to do that today. If you have extra to say, I know that God's generous heart toward me will never change. So to be on the lookout to say, what extra do I have? And who do I know or who do I maybe, maybe even not know that I have access to that I can share with? 
as I do that, I experience, I'm not paying God back. I'm experiencing the rich heart of God toward me that has always come to me and that will never change. When you hear the whispering of the serpent, God is not just with you. God is not right toward you. You're able to get more than he allows you to have. It's not fair to say God is more than right toward me. God has fulfilled his justice for me in his son. And if he has given me his son, how will he not with him freely give me everything else? We experience the rich and just heart of God by using the extra, using the positions of power or influence that we have to live out the just and rich heart of God. That's the passage that we read earlier that John read for us in Titus 3, starting in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, there it is, the rightness and the richness, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What's the result? The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Father, I I ask that, that if there's anybody here who is not yet found this preparation for the salvation that you give us so richly that they would that 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 you would take the words of John and use them to prepare the way to level mountains and to raise up valleys and to make paths straight toward Christ as the fulfillment of your justice and mercy and would you help us who are depending on Christ to experience the fullness of your heart as we extend it to others. Lord, we pray that your spirit would empower us for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.